All right. Uh, let's open our Bibles this morning. No, I'm not playing Angry Birds. Let's open our Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 19. I'm a Christian. We're studying the life of Abraham, and to do that, you're going to have to be in the book of Genesis going verse by verse and chapter by chapter. We're in chapter 19. It's our uh, desire this morning to get through the entire chapter. Genesis 19, verses 1 through 38. The topic we're going to find there, sexual sins are the backdrop for God's judgment upon the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. The title of our message, Sex and the Cities. Let's have a word of prayer. What else would you call it? Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thanks for our study this morning. And uh, Lord, it's a familiar, well-known passage. Uh, There's so much that we could talk about this morning. Uh, I I appreciate, Lord, the way that you have focused our heart's attention on Lot and his family and how we uh, want to be like Abraham and not like Lot. And I pray that you would speak to us by uh, the indwelling Holy Spirit and by your presence here in this place, that the words would be clear and understandable and that... uh, Anything I say would be subordinate to what you have already said, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name and all those who agreed said, amen. I want to be certain we are not becoming spiritually desensitized as Christians. Perhaps an example of what it means to be desensitized would help. Let's pick on television, or as some Christians like to call it, television. I I thought that was clever. It's not my cleverness, someone else's. In a survey of scientific studies and findings, the Henry J. Kaiser Family Foundation confidently stated the following in a report of the effects of television violence upon your children. Quote, based on the cumulative evidence of studies conducted over several decades, the scientific and public health communities overwhelmingly conclude that viewing violence poses a harmful risk to children. Viewing television violence can lead to increased antisocial or aggressive behavior and desensitization to violence. That is, becoming more accepting of violence in real life and less caring about other people's feelings. Now, people were becoming spiritually desensitized way before television. Abraham's nephew, Lot, may in fact be the poster boy for spiritual desensitization. He had become so desensitized in Sodom that he lost any real sense of being separated from the world. For his part, Abraham was separated and refused to become desensitized. Obviously, as I said earlier, we want to be Abraham's and not be Lot's. And so let's therefore ask ourselves these two questions this morning. Number one, Are you desensitized and refusing to be separated? Or, number two, are you separated and refusing to be desensitized? We'll take a look, uh, first of all, uh, primarily at Lot in the opening verses. Now, our story begins with the evening arrival of two visitors to Sodom. Verse 1. Now, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And he said, here now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, no, we'll spend the night in the open square. But he insisted strongly. So they turned into him and entered his house. Then he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. Now, these two angels had been dispatched to deliver Lot and his family from Sodom on the eve of its destruction from heaven by God. Lot insisted they receive his generous hospitality. 
Abraham had done the same a chapter earlier. These two angels, along with the Lord, a pre-incarnation appearance of Jesus, they had appeared outside of Lot's or uh, Abraham's tent, and he had showed them the same hospitality. And so we might say that Lot was acting just like Uncle Abraham. He seemed on the surface every bit as spiritual. It could also be argued that Lot was far more successful than his uncle. It says here he was sitting in the gate. That was an indication you were one of the leaders of the city. It was at the gates of the city where you would bring disputes and where decisions would be made. It was kind of the city council of that era. While Abraham remained an itinerant nomad living in tents and moving from place to place, Lot had settled down and risen to a place of prominence in the city of Sodom. Many Christians look like Lot. They seem spiritual and they enjoy a lot of outward success from a worldly standpoint. But just beneath the surface, we're going to see that although Lot was certainly better than the world around him, he had become so spiritually desensitized that if we didn't have the testimony of Abraham and the apostle Peter calling him righteous, we'd conclude that he was unsaved. Verse 4, now before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. And they called to Lot and they said to him, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. They wanted to have sex with these men. So Lot went out to them through the doorway. He shut the door behind him and he said, please, my brethren, do not do this wickedness. See, now I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. And they said, stand back. Then they said, this one came in to stay here, and he keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man, Lot, and they came near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. Now, there can be no disputing that the men of Sodom were homosexual and or bisexual, and they wanted to rape these two visitors. Otherwise, what was Lot's point in offering his virgin daughters in their stead? There can also be no honest disputing that homosexuality is condemned in the Bible as sin. Any attempts to justify it as a behavior from the Bible involve denying and destroying the precise wording of Scripture. God intends sex to be celebrated and enjoyed in a marriage between one man and one woman for life. Biblical marriage is heterosexual and monogamous. Within those boundaries, and this is a quote from Hebrews 13, marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled. Now, God is no prude when it comes to marital sex. One whole book of the Bible is dedicated to the romance of courtship and the consummation of marriage in the marriage bed. It's the Song of Solomon. The Jews didn't allow their children to read it until they were a certain age. You're going to rush home and read it now, I know. But anyway, <laughs> God portrays marital sex as joyous blessing without blushing. I read some statistics, a lot of statistics this week I was reading, but it was uh, back to television. It was talking about how on television, uh, married sex is always portrayed as either non-existing or boring. 
uh, whereas premarital or adultery, uh, premarital sex or adultery is always promoted as something exciting and fantastic. And so, uh, you know, I need to tell you, God is not a prude. Uh, he, he, in, he included a sort of a sex manual in the Bible. Uh, and, and as long as you stay within God's boundaries, uh, there's nothing to blush about. Now, having said all that, the men of Sodom are not the main characters in this narrative. Lot and his family are the main characters. And so today, I'm not really talking to or about homosexuals. I'm talking to Christians about our becoming desensitized. And honestly, honestly, the thing that strikes us the most in this passage isn't the fact that Sodom was filled with homosexual and bisexual men. It's the fact that Lot was willing to offer his two virgin daughters to be raped by them. Apparently, he felt it was a lesser sexual sin. He said, don't do this wickedness. Don't try to rape these visitors. Take my daughters instead. I can live with that. If we're not careful, we can become desensitized and think that there are lesser sexual sins that we can commit while at the same time condemning others as heinous. Any and all sexual activity that is outside those beautiful and protective boundaries of biblical marriage is sin. When you want to think about sex and what is sin and what isn't sin, just go back to the garden and think about God's boundaries. One man, one woman, heterosexual, monogamous marriage for life. Everything that's outside of that is sin. That would include homosexuality for sure, but also pornography and premarital sex and adultery as well. Christians are adamant about making their feelings known regarding homosexuality. Accurate or not, I'm not saying this is true, but accurate or not, homosexuals who need salvation in Jesus Christ feel that evangelical Christians hate them. It may not be true, but you can read this, you can talk to people and they say, oh, you're a Christian, you hate me. Because I'm a homosexual. If studies and statistics are accurate, several other sexual sins listed in the Bible are pretty prevalent in the church among the saints. Almost every poll taken shows that 50% or more of Christian men admit to viewing pornography on a regular basis and lots of Christian women too. The National Survey of Family Growth reported that 65% of all Protestants and 49% of what they call active Protestants engaged in premarital sex. According to the Journal of Psychology and Christianity, and I quote, an astounding 50 to 65% of husbands and 45 to 55% of wives have had extramarital affairs by the time they are 40 years old. I'm not concluding anything or even suggesting anything. I'm just wondering... If we are not somewhat like Lot, if we have become desensitized and only rail against certain sexual sins while committing others. If that's the case, then we need to become separated again to God's immutable, his unchanging standards. We need to return to biblical sexual purity. In plain terms, we need to see the porn and the premarital sex and the adultery statistics go way down in the church before we really rail against others. And so Lot, always don't you ever wonder about this thing with Lot? How could he do that to his own daughters? How could he even think something like that? It's because he had become desensitized by living in that immoral culture. And he was now ranking things 
as worse than others, and he had definitely left a standard of sexual purity. He should have just said no and taken his chances and let the angels deal with it. Now, Lot was also desensitized to what I would call spiritual urgency, shifting gears a little bit in verse 12. Then the men said, uh, the men, excuse me, said to Lot, have you anyone else here, son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and whomever you have in the city, take them out of this place. For we will destroy this place because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who had married his daughters, and said, get up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But to his sons-in-law, he seemed to be joking. Besides his two unmarried daughters, Lot had at least two and maybe as many as three married daughters. When he went to warn them and their husbands, they thought it was a joke. They scoffed at the thought of God's impending judgment. Apparently, they had never before seen in Lot a sense of urgency with regard to spiritual things. Lot had let at least 20 years go by living in Sodom, putting God on the back burner, so to speak. He had no conversions among the godless sodomites, and he had little conversation about God with members of his own family. It's easy to put spiritual things on the back burner, and here's why. The world designs strategies to keep you busy and to get you doing anything besides praying and studying the Word of God and attending church. Now, we're always careful about this because... It's easy to put burdens on people. And we, we don't want to become Pharisees where we put burdens on people that they can't bear or that we ourselves aren't doing. And so I'm not going to get into a big thing about how little you pray or how little studying you do or I do or, or even by, uh, attending church. In fact, we try to make it easy for people to attend church, don't we? You can be in the sanctuary, you can be in the balcony, you can be in the foyer, you can be in the fellowship hall. You can be out in the courtyard if it wasn't raining, drinking coffee. You can be almost anywhere on campus and be attending church. You could be watching online and attending church. And we don't keep track of attendance. We don't have attendance records. Uh, you know, uh, we're, we're, we're not that way. But having said all that, watching families over the years, being here, you know, 25 plus years, it's easy to get into a habit of neglecting the things of God because the world, you know, it's designed to rip you off of spiritual things. Especially if you have a family, you know what I'm talking about, because there's always a tension between your kids' activities and church activities. I think they go out of their way to plan things on church nights and on weekends and on Sunday mornings. All they have to do is avoid Sunday morning. Everything would be fine. But no, they, they, they've grabbed Sunday. So, so there's always this tension. And all I'm pointing at, all that we're talking about this morning is, If you're not careful, if I'm not careful, we become desensitized by that bombardment from the world. And we start to think, well, as long as I'm better than the world, as long as I'm doing more than they are, I'm okay. I'm not as bad as the world, not as good as I could be. And then we end up like Lot. And one day, it isn't a week that's gone by that we've missed church. It's 10 years. And our kids have picked up the example from us that there's no real urgency to this spiritual stuff. I watch my dad, and he, he reads the Bible sometimes, sometimes not. Sometimes he prays, sometimes he doesn't. We don't go to church on a regular basis. It depends on what he feels like doing that day. And you raise up a generation of kids that laughs at you 
and says, well, yeah, I don't even want to go to church. Why would I go to church? There's nothing urgent about that. The Lord's not coming. You don't live like you believe the Lord is coming, do you, Dad? Really? And that's what happened to Lot. And when, when the chips were down, when these angels came and they said, the time is now, it's tonight, it's right now, you're going to lose your family if you don't share with them what's happening. His family was more desensitized than he was, and he did lose those members of his family. And so we need to be careful about becoming desensitized to spiritual urgency. Now, the angels are going to drag Lot and Mrs. Lot and the two unmarried girls out of town, and then the cities are going to be destroyed. We're going to skip that for a minute because I want to follow our theme. So skip down to verses 30 through 38. Then Lot went up out of Zoar to dwell in the mountains, and his two daughters were with him, for he was afraid to dwell in Zoar. And he and his two daughters dwelt in a cave. Now the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there's no man on the earth to come into us, as is the custom of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. It happened on the next day that the firstborn said to the younger, Indeed, I lay with my father last night. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. You go in and lie with him that we may preserve the lineage of our father. Then they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger, she also bore a son, called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the people of Ammon to this day. This is ugly, it's vile. Without overlooking or minimizing in any way the sin of incest, Lot's problem on these two consecutive nights was that he got drunk. Now, we've talked about alcohol many times. You know it's kind of a pet peeve of mine, and so uh, you indulge me. I appreciate that. I always point out that the Bible does not condemn drinking, only drunkenness. But then I ask if someone can actually determine for me what it means to be drunk. Ephesians, it says, Be not drunk with wine, where is in excess, but be filled with the Spirit. I want somebody to really tell me what it means to be drunk. Is it the first sign of a buzz? Because even law enforcement now has those uh, uh, billboards that say buzzed driving, what, is drunk driving. So, you know, even the secular world is starting to recognize, you know, they don't say your blood alcohol level of this is drunk driving. They say, hey, if you've even got a buzz, you know, you're already in trouble. Or is getting drunk being when you finally pass out? Because that's what I thought for years. Uh, I, 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 it's not funny, but it, it is and it isn't. But I started drinking alcohol at the at my eighth grade party. Uh, it was at the end of eighth grade, uh, we were able to get our hands on alcohol, and I drank uh, on a regular basis. I was a weekend drunk from the time I was in the eighth grade until I got saved when I was in you know in my early twenties. Uh, and for me. Well, if you ask me what it meant to be drunk, it was when I passed out and had to be helped into bed uh, and vomited all over myself. That was what it meant to be drunk. Anything up to that was just drinking, uh, and uh, whether I was driving or whatever, it didn't really matter. Uh, and so I understand. So this is a real thing with me. It's a real, uh, you know, a real area of interest, you might say, that I have uh, when it comes to drinking. So. Now, I'm just speculating here, but I don't think Lot 
was a regular drunk. There's nothing in his history to indicate that he was a, an abusive father or a drunk. He, he drank, that's clear, and he got drunk, blind drunk, on these two nights. What I'm getting at is that drinking alcohol is the best way I know for a person to become desensitized towards getting drunk. If you want to desensitize yourself towards what it means to be drunk, build up a greater and greater tolerance to alcohol. Make it more and more available to yourself until one night or one day or for the rest of your life you decide that this is a, a lifestyle and it starts to take a hold of you. And so drink if you want. You know, I, I, I'm very fair about this. The Bible does not condemn drinking, only drunkenness. I just think you ought to be very, very careful uh, uh, from somebody who was a drunk uh, just take that to heart. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's much to be preferred. Uh, and then you'll be helping people, ministering to people, blessing people. Again, these are just three areas in Lot's life. This is what affected Lot. The entire world system, if you're a Christian, you understand this, is out to get you. Uh, there really is a conspiracy. There is a satanic agenda. And one of the ways that the world gets to you is to desensitize you to certain things so that you think, and I think, I'm better. I'm not as bad as that guy. Uh, I'm not as good as I could be, but I'm, I'm holding, you know, it's almost as if you think, well, I, I, I'm getting swept away a little bit with the tide, but I'm holding back. And God would say, no, be separated. What are my standards? Maintain sexual purity. Have an urgency. Redeem the time because the days are evil. Be not drunk with wine where is in excess, but be filled with the Spirit. God says we are not to move from those standards, no matter how uh, small the movement is. It doesn't. It w of course we want to be better than the world, especially the world we live in today. Amen? I mean, it's, it's pretty nasty out there. It's, it is Sodom and Gomorrah uh, and, and much worse. But we don't want to be Lot, we want to be Abraham. And so in verses 15 through 29, let's build up to Abraham and his posture. First of all, we get back to the angels dragging Lot out of Sodom. Verse 15, when the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. By the way, just as a time out, if two angels came to Hanford and stayed at my house, and said, tomorrow we're going to destroy this city and rain fire down on it. I don't know if I could sleep very well. I'd want to, I'd say, can we leave right now? How about, you know, because I, I don't want to have any problems here in the morning. You know, I don't want to, especially in Hanford, you're going to get stuck at the train. <laughs> if you're hurrying out of town and all of a sudden it's like, oh no, it's a freight train, you know, and your fire is raining, you know, like in all those sci-fi movies where the, it's right behind you, you know, and you're just moments away from being flamed. In Hanford, you'd be toast. But uh, anyway, so if Hanford's ever getting ready to be destroyed, take an alternate route that doesn't go by the train. All right, anyway, so verse 16, and while he lingered, I love this. Now he's lingering. Not only doesn't he leave immediately, he's kind of, uh, has anybody seen my razor? I really can't leave without my razor. And so uh, they grab him. They took his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. So it came to pass, when they had brought them outside, that he said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you. Don't stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. Then Lot said to them, please, no, 
Indeed, now your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have increased your mercy, which you have shown me by saving my life. I can't escape to the mountains, lest some evil overtake me and I die. See, now this city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Please let me escape there. Is it not just a little one, and my soul shall live? And he said to him, See, I have favored you concerning this thing also, in that I will not overthrow this city for which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar, and the sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zoar. Now, about telling Lot to flee to the mountains, the angels were really encouraging him to become spiritually separated from the world. Uh, Lot's problem, we've been looking at it over several studies, we mention it every now and then, is that he chose to look towards Sodom and then to move towards Sodom and then to live in Sodom. He kept getting more and more involved in the world. Uh, obviously, we're different. When we talk about being separated from the world, we're not talking about finding a cave up in the mountains or you know, living in a commune. Uh, Jesus told us to be in the world, but not of the world. It's more of a spiritual decision. And so, you know, God has strategically planted us in the world. The idea, though, is that we are to not be drawn in by it and not be desensitized by it. And so uh, what the angels are essentially saying is you shouldn't be living in the cities in this time of uh, in this dispensation, in this era. Be like your uncle Abraham and get out of the cities. And Lot says, yeah, I'm not going to do that. Uh, I, I'm not going to live in the mountains like Abraham. Can I live in Zoar? He says, after all, it's not big, bad Sodom. It, it, you know, I can't get in as much trouble in, Sodom, in Zoar as I did in Sodom, so can I live there? Don't mistake the angels allowing him to do that for uh, their approval. You know, a lot of times, you know, God will allow us to do things that are not good for us. Uh, and you can't say, well, you know, God didn't stop me from doing it. Well, that's because you have free will and God loves you and, and he's going to let you. But it doesn't mean it's the best thing for you. And so uh, Lot just doesn't want to be separated. And so verse 24, Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. He overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. Modern archaeology has unearthed Sodom and Gomorrah. Only the scientific communities called them Babadra and Numera because they're reluctant to admit the Bible is the word of God. I'm going to read a passage from uh, 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 an archaeological journal. Uh, it goes like this. By 1924, archaeologists became convinced of the possibility of some ancient inhabited area near the barren eastern bank of the Dead Sea. Uh, by the way, this was after a long time of them saying there was no such place as Sodom and Gomorrah. But then in 1924, they started to unearth things. An expedition had found some meager remains of an early Bronze Age structure assumed to have been a fortress or a temple. It was located on a mound known to them as Babidra. In the 1960s, a large cemetery was discovered near Babidra. Archaeologist Paul Lapp spent three seasons excavating the area where he unearthed a great number of shaft tombs, possibly as many as 20,000. A shaft tomb is a vertical hole dug into the rocky ground to a depth of approximately six feet. At the bottom of each shaft were one, uh, between one and five horizontal shallow shafts, each containing between one to six bodies. In addition, there were a number of mud brick buildings 
charnel houses that are repositories for bones or bodies of the dead. Each charnel house contained the remains of several hundred people. Current estimates of the number of bodies occupying that cemetery is about half a million. The great number of corpses in a single burial ground is evidence of a major population. Between 1973 and 1979, four more cities to the south of Babadra were found. Their Arabic names are Numera, Safi, Faifa, and Kanazir. The surrounding area has been thoroughly explored, and no other cities have been found, only these five. Now, if you're familiar with the biblical account uh, earlier in Genesis, we're told that there are these five cities in that area, and that's what archaeology has found. Numera was excavated for two seasons. Perhaps the most interesting find, the remains of a winery with 4,000-year-old whole grapes still there, preserved by the arid desert climate. This validates Moses' reference to the vineyards of Sodom. In Deuteronomy 32, 32, he spoke of there being vineyards in Sodom and fields in Gomorrah. Uh, the entire areas of Babadra and Numera are covered with a spongy ash. These two cities show clear signs of utter destruction. The layer of ash ranges from 4 to 20 inches in depth. Parallel to these five cities is a fault line where two large plates of earth are exerting great pressure on each other. This tectonic feature has caused a number of earthquakes in the region. The pressure can also force subterranean matter such as magma or in this case bitumen into the air. Geologists suggest that the earth spewed forth flammable hydrocarbons high into the atmosphere that were ignited by lightning or some other natural source and the flaming debris fell back to earth. Okay, so in a nutshell, archaeology has found Sodom and Gomorrah, only they called them Babadra and Numera. They're part of five cities in the plains, just like the Bible says. They had a thriving population. Millions of people live there. And they know that the cities were destroyed by some kind of raining fire. Uh, they speculate that because there was an earthquake there, or an earthquake fault line, maybe it spewed bitumen into the air, and there also happened to be a lightning storm at the same time, and it ignited the sky, and all of that fell down, and it immediately destroyed those cities. Uh, we... I don't have any problem with that. If that's how God wanted to do it, uh, all, all I know is that he rained fire down. And so, so they found these cities. They're just like Sodom and Gomorrah, but they won't say they're Sodom and Gomorrah. They were destroyed by fire from heaven, just like Sodom and Gomorrah, but they have to come up with their own theory of how that happened. Uh, now, we don't ever need the Bible to be proven by archaeology I think it gives archaeology a black eye uh, when for years they say this couldn't have happened, it never existed. Oh, there it is, but it's not what you think it is. And it was destroyed by fire, but we have a crazy idea of how that happened because we don't want to believe that there is a God in heaven who judges the earth. And that's the bottom line. Genesis 19.26, but his wife looked back behind him and she became the Morton Salt Girl. Uh, <laughs> Looked back is believed by some to mean returned or lagged behind. Her heart was even more in Sodom than her husband's. We refer to people as pillars sometimes, don't we? We talk about people being pillars of the community, meaning they're the upstanding citizens. Salt, especially in those times, was a preservative. And in the Bible, it always symbolizes the effect a believer ought to have on his or her surrounding culture. We are to preserve godliness and prevent spiritual decay. 
Lot's wife being turned into a pillar of salt was a monument to what she ought to have been, but was not God's pillar of salt in that lost society. Lot was desensitized, and in the end, he refused to be separated from the world. And I think the saddest thing about this is that it cost him his entire family, and it left him with two deviant daughters. Abraham remained separated, refusing to be desensitized. Uh, Verse 27, Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. Then he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain. And he saw and behold the smoke of the land, which went up like the smoke of a furnace. And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham. He sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelt. Earlier in the story, uh, Abraham had rescued Lot and all of the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah during a time of warfare, but he refused to take any of the spoil that was offered to him. He made a conscious, willful choice to remain separated from Sodom and Gomorrah. It meant nomadic living in tents, having no lasting possessions or any real position in this world. But it positioned him with God in such a way that his prayers were heard, that he had, I mean, compare his effect on Lot to Lot's effect on his own family. You want to be Abraham in this story to where you can pray and even a a, a backslidden sinner can, you know, be saved because God listens to you as opposed to Lot who is telling his family the truth finally and everybody's laughing at him. And Abraham, instead of accumulating a few meager earthly possessions, he would have a vast spiritual inheritance. And so, obviously, we want to be Abraham in this story. We want to remain separated in the world, but not of the world. As you get ready for re-entry to the places God has strategically scattered you out into the world, two things. Choose daily to remain separated and be extra sensitive to becoming desensitized. It happens more rapidly than we'd like to admit. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this text. Uh, And uh, Lord, there's just so many things we could have talked about and so many directions we could go in. But uh, it seems that you want us to focus on Lot and his family so that we will not be like him. Uh, He was saved, Lord, and that's great. But we don't want to be saved just barely and just make it in by the skin of our teeth. We want to be those who are making a difference in the world around us. We saw earlier today, Lord, how Bible prophecies are coming true before our very eyes. Every week for the last 300 weeks or so, we've looked at different prophecies and the fulfillment of them in the, in the news and all. We want to be people who pray for our friends and family and even backslidden Christians and who see your mercy unfold, Lord, in their lives. Uh, see you long-suffering towards them, drawing them to faith in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that we would check ourselves in these areas that we've talked about, but in every area, as to where we have become desensitized, knowing that that's what the world is doing. It is desensitizing us. It's just hammering us with stimuli on every level. And I pray that we would flee to you, that we would stand with you as Abraham did that we would be refreshed by the washing of the water of your word, as you say in Ephesians, filled with your spirit to overflowing, and that instead of the world affecting us, we would affect the world. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.